Welcome to episode four of the A Word of Good podcast. My name is Gethin Aiden and my guest today is Chris Budd. Chris founded Ovation Finance Limited in 2000 as a fee-based financial planning firm. In 2018, he sold a majority stake to an employee ownership trust and he now continues as Ovation chairman. Chris is also the author of the Financial Wellbeing book published in 2016. The book and the ongoing Financial Wellbeing podcast explore how to use financial planning to make us happier, not just wealthier. In 2020, Chris founded a new institute, the Initiative for Financial Wellbeing. Chris's latest book, The Eternal Business, came out in 2018 and established Chris as one of the UK's leading experts in employee ownership for small to medium enterprise. As a huge ambassador for financial wellbeing myself and a founder member of the Initiative for Financial Wellbeing, I was delighted and excited to have the opportunity to talk to Chris about all things money. Please welcome Chris Budd. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Gethin. Very good indeed. How's your week treating you so far? Are you taking care of your own well-being? <laughs> well, I'm standing here in a cabin in my back garden, which looks over some fields up to the woods, and uh, particularly delighted that the birds have come to my bird feeder at last. So, yeah, all, all is good. Well, life sounds terrible for you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a uh, favourite line, I, I, I like to say is, I've worked very hard to be this lucky. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think it's... Uh... It's interesting when we talk to season one of this podcast, we talk a lot about kind of people spending time outdoors. Recorded a whole episode outdoors in the woods with the uh, the birds and stuff, and I, I it, we kind of forget how far away from that kind of tribe and fire stuff that we are. Um, so I think it's good to get back to that. Yeah, I agree. It, look, there's a thing about success in all of this, isn't there, with financial well-being? Um, what is success? And I always define success as having flexibility of my time. So when I can choose whether to do something or not, then I believe I, I, that, that's a success for me, you know, which is a successful position. And it always bugs me when you see on the news, and there's one recently, 300 million wiped off the economy because of the snow. And you think, no, we were all outside having fun. <laughs> that's what the snow brought. A great time with my kids. They're not, let's not count everything in financial terms, you know? Yeah, I guess that's... Um part of the challenge we're facing right is because we measure success you know, our success is measured in money in you know, in so many instances so kind of lack of money and not spending money is kind of something to be ashamed of which is kind of really weird position for us to get ourselves into i think it is and so so look this is all about the workplace right so let me let me launch into uh, a bit of a theory of mine if i may uh, which is that um business owners in this country are fattest children People like me, we grew up in the 80s and we saw business as meaning money and success as meaning money. That's how it all worked in the Thatcher years. And then we own and run the business. And we're mainly men, uh, we're mainly white, all the statistics show that. And we tend to believe, I, I don't, but you know, I'm obviously generalizing, that uh, money equals success, success equals money. But the younger generation don't tend to. They tend to see life more in terms of purpose. Um, a lot of them don't even think there's going to be <laughs> humanity in 50 years, potentially. So they're not so fussed about long-term you know, wealth gain. They're more interested in, running for, in working for purpose. So consequently, there's this disconnect that I see all the time 
um, where business owners are trying to reward their employees by shares, options, or by bonuses. And the employees just want to get involved with the business and have their purpose um, fulfilled. And that's why you know, somebody of my generation might moan that millennials move jobs every couple of years and this kind of thing. Well, that's the reason why they are, is because they're not getting fulfilled by purpose in their workplace. And I think there's a real disconnect there that we need to, we need to uh, solve. Yeah, and that kind of leads me on really nicely to a question I wanted to ask you, actually, that um, with some of the stuff I've been reading that you've kind of produced, um, you mentioned in, in one article that financial planning is really very simple. Work out what you want from life and spend your money on that. Um, and I just wanted to unpack that a little bit and just look at how can employers help their staff achieve that kind of freedom? Because, as you said, if it's if it's not about the money, it's about doing the things they want to do in life. Clearly, money will be able to free people up, as you mentioned, or give them more time to do some of those things. So kind of what sure. have you found employers could do to help people kind of get that purpose through either saving money or spending money? Well, the first thing they could do is make sure that their purpose is very well defined because you want people working for your company who believe in what you do. They're not just enjoying their daily job, but there is some sort of higher purpose to what they're doing. So I, I the financial planning company I ran, Ovation Finance, I sold a majority share of it to something called an employee ownership trust in March 2018. And I now spend a lot of money, I do two things, financial well-being is one, but the other is uh, helping owners to move into employee ownership trust. And so one of the things that we talk about to business owners is you have to have what we call a flag on the ground, a really clear flag around which everyone can gather, customers and employees alike. And if you have a really clearly defined purpose, then uh, it should probably alienate some people. Some people will go, no, I don't like that, because if it appeals to everybody, it's not a clear flag on the ground, it's not purpose. And if you get that, then you will attract employees who don't just um, want to come to work with you for the money, you know, but they want to come to work with you because it helps fulfill their own purpose. So that's one thing I would suggest. And um, at Ovation, I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't think they'll hear it. Everybody at Ovation could earn more money elsewhere. Hmm. They could earn more money by going to one of the national financial advice companies and selling investments at commission rates that are much higher than... They don't because they get real purpose from working innovation and concentrating on on well-being and so forth so so that's one thing the work out what you want from life spend your money on that kind of like cap straight if you like um really means that financial well-being comes in two parts the first is the bit that is about you what makes you happy and that will be different for everybody and the second thing is the universal truths what are just the research shows will make people happy so helping employees to understand both those things will go a long way to working out um how to give them well-being financial well-being and, and we know right there is now the, the evidence is vast and compelling that um the things that give us most joy in life generally are the things that we can't buy so when you look at kind of how we improve people's mental health it's getting back to that kind of tribe and fire of spending time in nature, spending time outdoors, exercise, socialising with people. You know, time and time again, we know that, you know, I guess we're fighting against hundreds of years' worth of marketing that tell us, you know, buy this thing and somebody will find you more attractive or you will enjoy your life more. Um, but it's just not true, is it? There's just there's very, if any, evidence that, you know, long-term buying stuff and spending money on that kind of stuff doesn't uh, impact your well-being at all. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, if I give Bill Gates a tenner, 
he's not going to be any more happy than he currently is, right? <laughs> so that's the extreme. If I give somebody who's homeless a tenner, it probably is going to make them, self, them happy. So where is the line? Where is that how much is enough figure? Now, we know that um, it's different for everybody. So for one person uh, who may be in this Mr. Money moustache, and if you, you come across that guy in America, there's a real move towards not needing money and stuff. And so there, how much is enough figure will probably be enough to, to eat and, uh, and, uh, and to drink and have a shelter, the old Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So that their figure could be quite low. Somebody else might say, no, no, I, you know, I really do need a yacht to be happy because I love sailing. Um, and that's my hobby. And I, I really do need a yacht in the south of France with a villa um, to be happy. And okay, I'm not convinced that's entirely true. But if that's what they, I'm not going to judge, that's what makes them happy. So maybe they need 10 million to be happy, you know, but I know that you don't need 100 million to be happy. That's well proven. So what's really important is to work out your number. And it doesn't need to be an exact number. But like any plan, it's the process of going through it is what's beneficial. So we can bring in some of the well known theories. So what you're touching on that you don't, this stuff doesn't make you happy. It's it's uh, actually social relationships is the easily the biggest contributor. So work out some of that stuff, what work out for you what's unique, and then you start to come up with your number. And after 20 or so years in financial planning, the one thing that I discovered in that time, hopefully a few more things in one, but one particular thing was that when people work out their how much is enough figure, the number is never as big as they thought it was going to be. Mm. They never, literally, I, would, I can almost not think of an, um, uh, the other way around. Every single time people go, oh, oh, that, is that all? And of course, if that means that you've already got more than that number, well, you've got options. You can enjoy yourself with that money then you can give it away philanthropy kids what have you but if you're striving and putting money away maybe you don't need to put as much away as you thought yeah it's fascinating i've um, there's some friends i've got who are going through the house buying process at the moment and um they were talking to me about kind of my experiences of it and they know i do lots of stuff around financial well-being so they're kind of asking you know not that i'm any kind of regulated person to be giving them advice but they were asking me questions about kind of the process I went through. And I remember saying to them, like, you know, they'd been on this saving route pretty intensively for about the last 12 months. And I kind of said, oh, how much are you looking to save? And they were like, well, as much as we can. And I was like, well, you might already have enough. So it's like, you need to know what kind of range of your house you can afford is. And then that will tell you what type of deposit you need. And then that will tell you how much money you need to save. It's like, if you're just endlessly saving without a goal, kind of, well, yeah. I, don't, I don't really understand the benefit of that. And I guess I see it with other friends as well. People save and save and it's like, got to get savings, got to get savings. And they get savings but, well into double figures. And it's kind of like, what's the what's the end goal here? You're just going to be like Scrooge McDuck and just sat on loads of money. Kind of what's the point of that? And I think, you know, you touch on, on advertising and marketing and uh, there are a lot of social pressures to do certain things in life. Property is is a particular bee in my bonnet. I have to say, <laughs> you picked on one there, um, because even the expression "property ladder," what a stupid phrase that is! <laughs> it implies that once you step on the bottom rung, you only ever walk up, and of course that's not true. We happen to have had twenty odd plus years of, of property prices going up, but it doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. So that's just just one one picky example, but there are lots of others about how much money we should have in 
it's like, well, it's designer clothes and, and, and what we should own and where we should live and so forth. If you actually unpick that stuff, which takes time, it takes help. Uh, it's about challenging self-limiting beliefs. It's, oh, it's great fun. But if you do unpick all of that lot, what is left is pretty simple, really. There was a really interesting study done by Harvard University. Have you come across this about happiness? Uh, probably. Okay. <laughs> Shall I, I tell you anyway? Yeah, whether um, I remember or not. It's secondary <laughs> to that, but yeah. So Harvard University approached some 900 plus um, uh, people uh, of eight, at age 18, and um, half of them were Harvard students and half of them lived in the poor area of the city. Uh, Boston. And they asked them, what did they think would make them happy in the future? And overwhelmingly, those 18 year olds all answered either money or fame. That's what how they've been conditioned by society, you know. So Harvard has then been going back to those uh, to those people every two years, for the last 80 years. And they've been saying to them, are you still happy or are you not happy? And what is affecting your happiness? And what's come out of that is overwhelmingly, they have discovered that, surprise, surprise, fame and money made virtually no difference to the level of somebody's happiness. But what did was the quality of their social relationships, not quantity, the quality of their social relationships, even to the extent that those who reported loneliness died younger. So when we talk about financial well-being, we've got to talk in terms of how we use our money to make us happy, not money as the objective itself. And this is what I try and talk about and do all the time, is to try and get people to, to realize that um, if we're rewarding employees, if you're saying, well done, here's a bit of money because you've done well, that might not be the thing that's going to make them happy. Well, I think about, um, you know, I think about my own situation, kind of, you know, I'm 39 now. When I was 26 or so, I moved to London. I didn't want to get to London and owe any money. And I had quite a few grand on a credit card at the time. Um, and so I signed up for, much to my parents' annoyance, um, medical testing. So I checked myself into a hospital in <laughs> Merthyr Tydfil for nine days. Uh, had blood taken from me for like, like 10 times a day and just literally laid on this bed watching DVDs for like nine days and got paid about three grand cash for doing it. Um, Any long-term side effects? <laughs> no, no. Weird is, <laughs> well, it was at the time when... Um, somebody did die and it was in all the papers around medical testing so my parents actually ended up driving up to the hospital about midway through that week oh. and demanded to see me um which they weren't supposed to but um and i just kind of think about that and i think about you know at the time i was you know living in a, a shared house uh, i was just about kind of running my first car um had a you know kind of junior manager job and then moved to london and um and then my career kind of really took off and I'm now in a comfortable position where I'm lucky enough to have most of the trappings that people would want from uh, from life. But I can honestly say I'm not unhappy, but I'm definitely not as happy as I was when I was that age. Yeah, yeah. And and yet what the thing the thing that we chase is is tends to be financial or or wealth is to use a more general descriptor. You know? And I 100 um, percent did that. I 100 percent chased wealth. You know, that was kind of. I wanted a good career. I kind of literally had this dream, even as a kid. I used to have a poster of Rolls Royce on my bedroom wall when I was a kid. Mm. Everyone else had like pictures of Pamela Anderson and things like that, and I had 
uh, a picture of a Rolls Royce. Um, and so it was always kind of a suit, a briefcase and a business card. That's the kind of life I think I wanted growing up. And uh, I got all those things and it actually made no difference. And I think about <laughs> the times I've turned down jobs that have paid me more over the years. Um, and I've taken jobs for, for big pay cuts before. Uh, and I would now exchange quite a lot of money for the autonomy I get um, any day. I think yeah. making an impact and being able to actually do the things I enjoy. And I, and I guess, you know, I, I guess it comes at a point, right? You know, if you are, if you're doing a really low paid manual labor kind of job, that purpose stuff um, is, can seem a bit of a luxury, but I guess for most people at a point, you're absolutely right. This stuff kicks in and the money just is less important. Let me give you an example of that then. So um, there's one company we work for, uh, which is, um, they make, something that you'd put in your house. I won't, you know, carpentry type thing. Um, and uh, they are uh, on their way to be uh, maybe being an employee owned company. So we're, we're working with them about the culture and the flag and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things, um, one of the stories they told me that I absolutely loved was they said that that day, one of their fitters had been at somebody's house. They'd taken off a door, I think it was, and behind the door, they found some bats. Okay. Now, every other company that the this fitter had worked for, he knew the company would have said, just get rid of the bats and get on with it. But he knew his directors were different. So he phoned the directors up and said, what do you want me to do? And they said, bring in the bat conservation people. So the bat conservation people came and um, they are do, taking the appropriate measures to save, you know, to, to safeguard these bats and the bat conservation guy said to him thank you thank you so much for calling us in i don't know this doesn't happen very often people don't normally stop their job costing them their business money in order to look after some bats thank you and the fitter was just chuffed to bits hmm. that was huge purpose he was getting from his business there because they treated people in a way that he believed in you know so it can come in many forms. It can come in many forms. But um, a lot of the financial well-being stuff that we see in the workplace tends to focus on debt and on budgeting. And although that's really, really important, don't get me wrong, it is. Um, actually, it's financial well-being is way, way, way wider than that. And I think employers can do much more interesting things. <clears throat> it's not just a question of your employee benefits package. Um, it's about a much wider... Um, a way of a dialogue of getting your employees to engage with their well-being. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I think um, almost entirely the focus I see from most employers that um, that I deal with is on, um, you know, debt is something people worry about. Go, let's get rid of that debt, or let's help people get rid of that debt. And it's almost similar to the kind of mental health conversation where there's a lot of things that people can do that are very reactive to poor mental health but very little that focuses on people not getting into a situation of poor mental health in the first place. Yeah. I think it's the same with financial well-being. The vast majority of stuff available in the market at the moment is reactive and isn't proactively preventing people from making poor money decisions. It's just, okay, you've made some decisions that are putting you in a position of difficulty. Let's try and get you out of those. But And you know, there's so much of this is about selling, right? There's there's money and people are in debt. You know, you don't make money or don't make much money. Well, I guess you do make money out of people who save, right? Because you've got that money to invest. But um, selling money yeah. seems to become a popular yeah, that, trait. That, that, there's the old uh, the old classic Irish expression, isn't there, where somebody stops for directions uh, and they get the reply, well, I wouldn't start from here. 
um, that's where we are with financial well-being. When I um, there's a, when I do talks on this and workshops and stuff, there's a, um, a joke I start with, which is I actually invented the expression financial well-being. And it's true, I did. I just didn't know that two other people had invented it before me. <laughs> but um, when I wrote the financial well-being book, uh, when I sat down and started writing, I came up with a title five years ago, I Googled the expression, and genuinely there were two entries on that Google research, or uh, Google search. And one of them was a really good book by Rath and Harter called Wellbeing, which is a summary of lots and lots of Gallup surveys about well-being. And the other was the Barclays report into financial well-being. And that Barclays report has set everybody off in the wrong direction, in my opinion, because they use the term financial well-being simply to look at debt and budgeting. Mm. And therefore, everybody in the workplace had jumped on that and have just carried on from that point. And I, one of the reasons I do what I do, and we set up this institute and, and all the other stuff I do, is to try and say, no, 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 it's a much broader topic than that. Come back, everybody. Come back in. It's a much broader topic than that. Um, and it's a fascinating topic, but it's it's not, don't just talk about debt and budgeting, whilst acknowledging that those two issues are important. Um, if I give you one example of how this um, poor start, if I can put it that way, in my view, uh, plays out, um, we worked with one fintech um, on uh, their product. I also do some consultancy with, with companies about this stuff. And they were trying to come up with some sort of report on people's financial well-being. And we spent six months or so talking about it. And I kept saying, it's about purpose. It's all about helping people achieve purpose and identify purpose. It's not about an individual goal. It's not about buying a thing. It's about broader issues. That kept banging on and banging on. Eventually, they came out with a beta version of it, which was um, helping you save to buy a house. And I confess, I rather too much threw my toys out the pram because there are so many assumptions built into just that one thing. How do you know that buying a house is a good thing? Mm-hmm. It might be, but there could be lots of other options. You're linked with, you're stuck with one place. The person might have personal values, which means that they like to move around all, all the time, in which case buying a house could be the very worst thing for them. So we need to keep this topic as broad as possible. Um, even whilst others are trying to narrow it down because it suits their product that they have at the end of it, maybe, um, in the case of some companies. So uh, we need to keep this topic as broad as possible. And it, when HR departments talk to their um, talk to their employees and set up wellbeing programs, really, really encourage them to keep topic under thinking as broad and as wide as possible. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, kind of, some notes I made whilst you were talking then um, about kind of what you maybe think about was, you think about wider areas of well-being and if we kind of ask people to list what causes poor mental health that list would could go on there could be hundreds of things on that list of things that would affect somebody's mental health and then we think about physical health the kind of things that could affect us or give us poor physical health again that list could be quite long but as you mentioned you know you kind of if you ask somebody what causes poor financial well-being you're probably going to get a few answers driven by the message in the market, as you've mentioned before, kind of largely around kind of debt, buy this thing and we will solve this problem. Um, when obviously the reasons why somebody's in a poor situation, poor financial situation, could be very, very long. There's a really interesting um, and developing branch of uh, financial advice, which goes under a few different names, financial coaching, money coaching, behavioural coaching. Um, and 
on the podcast that we did, the Financial Wellbeing Podcast, we've had some interviews with some of these people, and they're absolutely fascinating. There's three people who are leading lights of this, as far as I'm concerned. There's Simone Ganes and Catherine Morgan and Mark Bristow. And um, we interviewed Mark recently, and, and he came up with a brilliant line, which I absolutely love. It's probably commonplace, but I loved it. It said, if we spoke to our friends the way we speak to ourselves, we wouldn't have any friends. Mm -hmm. And it really got me thinking. And he also tells a story about how um, he got lost in a supermarket when he was little. And um, it was only gone for his parents for a minute or two. But he realizes now, looking back, that that, that built into him um, the belief that his parents didn't love him. Right. And which he said was ridiculous because they did. It just it just something happened in his brain. And over the years, this kind of got very deep inside him and led to a lack of self-worth, which meant that he wasn't very good with money because he didn't think he deserved to spend his money on himself. And so he would tend to fritter it away and spend it on things and give it away to people. This is complicated stuff, man. This is really fascinating stuff. But these what we call self-limiting beliefs, this is financial well-being and this is how it links with mental health. So it's not um, how to manage your debt, it's why are you getting into debt? That's the interesting stuff. That's where you can really help people. Um, not just can you get a cheaper loan from somewhere else? Yeah, that will help a bit. But let's talk about your spending. Um, Simone Ganesson has this brilliant thing that she does where she talks and she says, um, imagine you're in a room and there's a knock on the door. You open the door and money is standing there wanting to come in the room. What does it look like? Describe it to me. Oh, that's a fascinating idea, that is. Mm. Um, so some people talk about the Monopoly man. You know, you, 20 years ago, may well have talked about somebody in a, a bowler hat and a pinstripe or, or the Rolex or something, because that's what you were saying before, you know, different things for different people. And understanding your relationship to money then will help you to manage your money better and spend your money on yourself in a way that will make you happy. These are the sorts of fascinating issues that, I would suggest employers can be helping their employees to think and talk about. I think it, it's so fascinating what you just said. And I think I, I, I don't think I've ever really heard anyone talk about it the same way. And I think that's what's missing. I think that's what's missing from the market is, you know, or we having those conversations with our employees, we have those conversations with ourselves that say, you know, what does that look like? You know, that, I think that's a great example. As soon as you talked about kind of money knocking at the door, um, absolutely right. You go back kind of 20, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and I would have told you pinstripe suit, Rolex. Uh, anyone knows anything about Rolexes knows they're probably not even great watches either. But that's the idea, <laughs> the idea that, you know, this is... Status symbols. Oh, yeah, massively. Um, and now I think about it, it would be, a, a, there would be some kind of holiday at the door or, mm. or the, well, no, not necessarily, from traveling, I guess is probably a better word than holiday because where I get most of my kind of enjoyment from life now is those when I'm able to travel and kind of experience new cultures that's kind of and I think when I when I really started to realize that it changed my attitude to what I spend money on because all of a sudden you know seeing a new Nintendo Switch that comes out and thinking oh, I quite like that automatically I'm like okay well that's like a weekend in Prague <laughs> or or I could buy that Switch and all of a sudden I'm starting to value those experiences that will do much more for my well-being than buying a Nintendo Switch for example so so let's bring this to the workplace if you um give somebody a bonus 
uh, and they don't particularly need the money, or you gave them three days off, um, or you, you know, I don't know, I'm making this stuff up now, but it, or you had, um, there was a, a company, <laughs> a company house in Bordeaux, and they got to use it for the weekend or something. I, I don't know. It's just we can think a lot wider than than in financial terms, and the challenge in the workplace well-being is. It's all very well me talking this stuff, but you can't pay for everybody to have individual money coaching. Well, you can, but you know it's a very labour intensive. So, how to design programs to just make a bit of improvement, a bit of difference? Uh, we do this this one hour uh, financial wellbeing workshop, and we get people to go through um, and write down a few things that make them happy. Um, so, we get them to work out their uh, a very simple disposable income. How much money do you have left over? You know. Uh, and then we get them to do things like um, write down any item that you've bought in the last year that costs over a hundred pounds. And then look at them and saying, are they still giving you well-being? Are they still still giving you joy to use that Marie Kondo thing, you know? So we're just trying to get people to engage with their money. And you can do stuff like that on a fairly broad basis. You, know, you can get a lot of people in, in, in a short space of time with that kind of thing. Um, uh, there's lots more work to be done and develop these sorts of things. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's about getting engagement with your finances. And if you do that with people in the workplace and you're doing the stuff on around purpose, you're uh, creating people-centric working environments um, where, for example, an appraisal is not about, you know, we, let's face it, we all absolutely hate appraisals, right? An appraisal is where somebody told you at the beginning of the year what they expect of you, and at the end of the year, tell you whether you've done it or not. Hmm. Where's the engagement in that? Uh, probably you know, it's been a long time since I worked in a corporate, so I'm sure things have changed, but my experience of, of appraisals was always a really negative one. But what about if you said to somebody, look, this is the purpose of the business, you know what your job is, go away and do it, and then come back in a year's time and tell me how you've helped achieve the purpose of the business. Yeah much more engaging way of speaking if you've got that going alongside conversations about money which is about well-being it's about their self-limiting beliefs their own personal money coaching issues you know suddenly you're going to get i would suggest a package of of measures that's going to really engage employees it's interesting about about five i think it's about five years ago um i was asked to host a round table at employee benefits connect in london and it was um, on employee happiness so we kind of had about I think about 25 30 people turned up this kind of obviously big round table um, and I uh, I gave them all a little bit of paper and I asked them to write down on that bit of paper what made them happiest um, and the idea was kind of just in the early days of employee experience it was just trying to get them to think about employee experience design and designing those experiences at work and I kind of said to them then you know write down that bit of paper what makes you happy you know what's what things in your life make you most happy and every single person in the table, bar one guy who put Man United, um, <laughs> every everyone else at the table said friends and family. And, yeah. I, and I use that as an example to say, so why aren't your HR policies making sure people can either spend more time with their friends and family or their friends and family can be look, better looked after, whatever it might be. Um, and, I, and until you've said what you just said, I never really thought about that as being a financial well-being conversation as well because... Mm. You know, when we look at what people want from work and we look from benefits wise, almost entirely at the top of the list is more time. Um, you know, people want either more holidays or um, more time away from work or shorter working day. It's, pr it's pretty universal now because I guess 
as you mentioned, you know, young people who are now, you know, under 40s, are, you know, will be the majority of the workforce in the next couple of years, have grown up with a different idea of what life should be and what our life's purpose is, as well as our work's purpose. And that is, you know, other people and things like that, which money can't buy. But I, as you've mentioned before, money can give you the options. Can facilitate. Can't exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, um, so I, I, I consider myself the proud owner of the largest collection of unread business books in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I keep buying them because they look interesting. And then I kind of read the first chapter and go, yeah, all right, got the idea, <laughs> which is terrible. But there we go. Um, one that I have managed to get all the way through is Drive by Daniel Pink. Have you read that one? I have, yes. Yeah, yeah I love that book. And the the idea that um, that younger people are working um, in solution-based businesses, you know, in solution-based roles, it's no longer there's your in-trade, empty it, and, you know, let me know when you're done and we'll give you another job. It's mu- because all of those sorts of jobs are computerized now. Sure. So it's much more about working for purpose. Um, and... HR policies, you know, companies' policies should reflect that and not just under and your reward structures. Here's a good story. So a very short one. Um, I delivered a financial wellbeing workshop to 60-odd people, two sessions. And um, in both of those sessions, I said, hands up, who is invested in the stock market? And of the 60 people, three people put their hands up. Then I said, hands up, who's in the company defined contribution pension scheme and everybody put their hands up and so i obviously told them you are all invested in the stock market and if you don't know that you are not sufficiently engaged with your money now i do a lot of speaking um and podcasting and and webinars in the financial advisory world and um this is what the institute is all about one of the things that i always say is look when somebody comes to you when a client comes to you what they are saying is look i've got this pot of money and i'm a bit scared by it i don't really understand it i don't know really what the stock market does um um, but i'm invested in it whether i like it or not so could i give it all to you and then you deal with it and i don't have to think about it again that's what I believe most people are asking for when they go to a financial advisor. What the financial advice world then does is it says, yeah, look, I've got these exams and I'm really clever. So I'll bring you back in in a few weeks time and I'll tell you about the investment portfolio I've created for you. Um, and I'll tell you, how I'm going to save you some tax and you sort your pensions out. And the clients go, well, that's the one thing I don't want to talk about. So, um, what we should be doing, the financial advice world particularly, but maybe this applies to the HR world as well. Let's stop talking to people about money and let's start talking to people about their happiness. Yeah, I think the pension is a great example. Right? I work in the employee benefits world. You know, pension is arguably the most well-known and popular by uh, by choice or by not opting out um, in, a, in, in, the bench, in the benefits market. And, um, you know, I think we have you know clearly people don't understand pensions right I, I people keep telling me pensions are simple and I've, I've written an article about it today in hr magazine because it's kind of like it's not simple if people still don't understand it so it doesn't matter how simple um this kind of middle-aged white man working for a big consultancy firm um says it is if people aren't getting grips to it and i think that's you know part of what you've said there i think which resonates with me is we're not having that wider conversation about it should be about retirement right or end of working life or as um, Jason Butler called it in season one, when work becomes optional. 
we're not just talking about one product we're having that conversation as you just said where you're kind of saying look as you kind of approach 70 years old what do you want life to look like what kind of things do you want to be doing where do you want to be living you know and all of a sudden you'll start to get people to think more about is a pension the right thing for me should i be investing in a different way now for my for my future uh, and very few people are having those conversations i i would go a step further i would say uh people so so i did um uh i spoke at a retirement conference uh for uh an employee benefits company in this last summer and the speakers before me were all talking about the pensions dashboard yeah. and how can we get you know get this over the line it's going on for such a long time um i didn't understand all of the arguments going forward uh, but i got the gist um how can we get people to engage with it and so as i got up on stage i said to the chairman can i be a bit controversial he said yeah go for it so so i said to this assembled room i said um this isn't my topic but can i just observe i think the reason why you haven't got a pension dashboard um over the line yet is because it's boring because nobody cares <laughs> the last thing i want to do is sit down and look at my pension the last thing i want to do so you get all these benefit statements giving me a list of all the things that i've got i don't want to know i'd like to know can i retire or go on holiday or whatever it is i want to can i reduce my hours so that i can start making stained glass windows or whatever it might be would make me happy that's what i want to know i don't want to see that i've my pension went up by four percent last year i really couldn't give a monkey's does not interest me at all and i'm a financial person but it's also so, what, what do you do with that information right you know in season one robin powell the ft journalist was and you probably know him i imagine um yeah he was talking about how you know these new apps that allow people to see the stock market moving throughout the Ooh. day or every day it's like that's not a good thing this is a long-term view yeah. worst thing you could do i mean there's all sorts of behavioral biases about that that, that that's playing into uh, one of these companies uh, spent 20 minutes showing um I, I might be one of your listeners so i, I, I certainly can't remember their name so i hope it'll be right but um showing how that they got a siri type automated person you know except it was it was a video and it was a face and it was really impressive this face that was telling you your pension information and uh, even so good that you could lip read they'd worked so hard on it for so many years you, you could lip read what this ai person was saying and I'm sitting there thinking, but all they're telling me is how much my pension's worth. And I don't want to know because it's not as much as I want it to be. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So um, if I see that the stock market's gone down 10%, I'll panic. And if I see the stock market's gone up 10%, I'll get a false sense of well-being because it'll go down again because that's the way it works, you know. Yeah, so, yeah it's, I've got some friends that I encourage to use. I use Moneybox. I kind of got, I've never been a good saver. And when Moneybox came about, it was one of the things that kind of helped me did a bit and kind of get some better habits and uh, i encourage some friends to download it and i now like when boris johnson kind of inadverted comments finally got brexit done um i got uh, a whatsapp from him saying uh he's like if your investment's gone through the roof and i was like yeah well obviously that just gave people confidence right and he's like oh it's brilliant i was like well, it'll go down i was like yeah. i'm gonna stay at eight percent and then it, like, two days later it's back down to kind of four percent again um, and the view was almost, oh, if that happens, should I, I? Maybe I should pull it out if that happens again. And I was like, the time it takes you to come out, that's not going to be reflective of by the time they've actually pushed the button anyway. And it's, yeah, but it's really interesting to see people that you know showing people those dashboards and showing them how things are changing, kind of every fifteen minutes or every hour, whatever it might be. It's like that's not the long term investment exactly as you said. It's kind of 
I don't want to know because I can't do much with that information now. Yeah, and yeah. it's control not the, the controllables. Yeah, control not... the controllables. And uh, so, so even if there are people that do want to know, then they should be educated that they are that the whole world of behavioural finance is a fascinating area. And um, we've interviewed we've interviewed quite a few people, people like Neil Beige and Greg Davis, some real bright guys around this area. And um, the conclusion that they have all come to when I've talked to them is we are hardwired to make bad decisions about money. Mm. If left to our own devices, the decisions we make will be bad decisions. And that's a universal truth. That's the same for everybody. So if somebody says, I like to keep an eye on my investments, they will almost certainly be doing more harm than good. Well, we know, right? So, there's there's quite a few TED talks. Um, there's what I've forgotten the, the the psychologist's name, but they tr- they decided that people, you know, they had a theory that people are bad at money, and so they decided to. The only way we could prove this was to find someone, a human that had never had any experience of money, and they ended up finding a monkey because they were thought that's probably the closest <laughs> we could find that. And so, and so they basically taught monkeys to kind of use these tokens. So you know. A man will come into your, a researcher will come into your cage. He'll take one of your yellow tokens and give you a banana. He'll come in and take two of your red tokens and give you one apple. And after a while, they started to realize that the some of them would give them more more fruit for less tokens, and they started to get used to that. Um, and then when they had the one guy who would or researcher that would come in and sometimes take loads and give you loads, and sometimes take nothing and give you nothing, and sometimes take loads and give you nothing, and all this kind of stuff, they started to become really risk averse to that person because they didn't like the insecurity that came with not knowing what was going to happen and so they were like okay so i think we've proved that people are naturally risk averse yeah yeah i do you know what um i would like and this isn't possible because i know the law stops it from happening but what i would like as an employer i would like somebody to come in let's say this is going to be so controversial but please hit me to the end okay (laughs) Um, let's say it's a young woman comes in. I would like to say to that young woman, are you planning to have a, have a family? Now, I'm not allowed to for very good reasons, because I could use that information to discriminate. That's quite right. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But what I'd like to do is for that young lady to say, I do plan to have family. I'd like to have two career breaks. And I would then say, that's great. Now I know I can plan my business accordingly around your plans for the future to work with that person to help them achieve the life that they want now i do appreciate that that's not possible because not everybody would use it in the right way but i just use that as an example of why not create a career and financial plan why not say to somebody when do you want to retire because we'd love to have you here to 60 but if you want to go at 55 well that's fine let's work towards it for you let's help you to achieve that let's create a financial plan with you um, or pay somebody for whatever, you know, the, um, the money you get to talk to somebody about your pension, that would be much better used to spend on a financial planner, to work with your real life that you want to achieve um, and the money that, that the company is going to give you in order to help you to be happiest in life. Mm-hmm. And if you had somebody who's got the next 10 years and I know where I'm going and if I work hard, I get to do that thing. I get to, you know, the example I gave earlier, I get to go part-time to make stained glass windows, which is a passion of mine. If you know that that's in the future, you're going to work damn hard to get there, aren't you? It's so, a it's a it's a fascinating example. I think something that I wrote about in my book that I think sums up what you've just said really nicely was there's a company in the US called Gravity Payments, and about three years ago, the CEO decided to forego his kind of multi million pound salary and decided based on a piece of research that said in the US at the time that the ideal kind of 
amount of salary in which you stopped really worrying about money too much it was about seventy thousand dollars so kind of probably at the time about 40 grand in this country and they're basically saying that's the point which you can kind of pay for stuff and not worry overly worry too much about money and so he decided to put everyone in the business i think it was about 200 employees up to seventy thousand dollars no matter what job they did and made sure that people were largely on the same salary um, obviously got loads of PR and stuff for it. His business increased massively because people just wanted to work with them. And he kind of wrote a story on his blog about two years later about the impact. And one of the things he kind of said that really shocked them was the amount of people that started having babies. He said, I think they had about nine people <laughs> had children. And when he was like, this is fantastic, you know what? Like, And he asked them and they were like, well, we never felt like we'd be in a financial position to be able to afford to have a kid and start saving oh, for their college. Yeah. And he was like, and, but you gave us the ability to do that. So to your point, you know, summarizing all of this stuff up, if people know what they want out of life, and if that's starting a family or having career breaks, whatever it might be, traveling the world, and you're able to help them do those things, then like you say, that's kind of proper financial well-being because you're using money to give them the life they want. But you also create an environment for you know, employees will thrive. Like you say, like, why wouldn't you want to go and work for that company if they helped you do those things? And you'd probably keep coming back to that company. In the employee ownership space that we work in, I did a little report recently um, where I interviewed a few companies where all employees know all everybody else's salary. Hmm. So completely open sharing of salary information. And even two of them, they set each other's salary. Now, this is when I tell most um, people this, they just look at me in absolute horror at the very idea, you know. But these companies, partly because they are an employee ownership company, it kind of enables it to happen. But one of them, for example, they sit in the in a room, everybody in the company, 60 odd employees, they all sit in a room and agree everybody's salaries. Um, now that is only able to happen because of a lot of work that goes on beforehand, uh, a culture of transparency that has built up over many years. But it can happen. It does happen. There are companies that do it. Um, there are companies where uh, they, when it comes to the profit distribution at the end of the year, um, the uh, they say to the employees, you know, 40 employees, there's 100 grand. You all go off for a day and decide how you're going to share it amongst you. And they do, happily. Yeah, I'm so, a big believer in that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so uh, we can't talk about this for the rest of our lives. Um, although I could. I, I would, yeah, <laughs> well, I would, I would love to. I'm not sure how great listening it would be. Um I'm going to put my neck out there and say it already that this is so far my favourite episode of this season. Um, Because I think I could talk about this stuff with you for a long, long time. Um, But just to kind of wrap up, the one thing I wanted to talk to you about was something you set up called the Initiative Financial Wellbeing. I've signed up as a founding member as well. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about why you set that up and kind of what it is and how they can get involved? Well, welcome on board, firstly. Thank you for signing up. Um, The idea is that I want to create a place where the financial community can come together to discuss happiness, not just money. So our tagline, which is also the tagline for the book, is that we are here to help people to become happier, not just wealthier. Now, uh, that means all sorts of interesting things. And quite where this is going, I don't know. We've, We've um, we become official at the beginning of the year, so some seven weeks, and we've already got 140 individual members. We've got a conference on the 14th of May in Bristol. Um, we want partner members, and we want exhibitors, obviously. Um, we don't want sponsors, we want partner members. So we want companies who will help us to do research, for example. Um, we've got our first bit of research, fingers crossed, just about to be announced. 
Um, and we also want to produce tools um, to help uh, people to, to, to work on their well-being. Um, the whole workplace well-being, with quite a few advisors who do get involved in that. Um, so that's an interesting area. Um, at the moment, that's one of our ambition areas. Um, we're working on tools and on research first and also setting up the events. But I'm really, really keen to get into the workplace space as well. Um, and we're also going to be looking at things like mental well-being, philanthropy and other areas, uh, and maybe even trying to get some pro bono advice from the advisors. So it's very exciting. Um, it's early days, but the interest is absolutely crackers. The funny thing is, Gethin, so my day job is employee ownership and advising business owners. And um, that's going okay. I'm doing doing well. You know, I've got very good reputation, et cetera, et cetera. The Financial Wellbeing Institute has just absolutely skyrocketed, and I don't get paid for this. Yeah. <laughs> so, if only the thing but that it, I get paid for is anything Chris. like as successful as the thing I don't get paid for. This is your purpose, Chris. Though, so you've kind of it, said that now, right? You can't. My, uh, my wellbeing is pretty good. Yeah. yeah, good stuff. Excellent. So um, Chris's book, The Financial Wellbeing Book, uh, Creating Financial Peace of Mind, is available to buy on Amazon or at www.financial-wellbeing.co.uk. Where Can I, I just believe... add, uh, Gethin, that uh, all proceeds of that go to the Penny Ron Cancer Charity. And I think if they buy it through, is it better if they buy it through your website as well rather than uh, well, if they Amazon? Would happen, if they were to go to Penny Braun, which is P, uh, sorry, B-R-O-H-N, uh, and type into Google Penny Braun Financial Wellbeing, you'll go straight to the book, get it straight from them, and that maximizes their, their take, so to speak. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, and at www.financial-wellbeing.co.uk, you can find more about, about Chris and what he's doing. You can read his blog and listen to his great podcast, podcast as well. And you can find out more about the Initiative for Financial Wellbeing and become a member at www.initiativeforfinancialwellbeing.org.uk. And we'll put all these links in the show notes as well. Thank you very much, Chris. Really, really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, as you've said, you're really busy with quite, juggling quite a few things at the moment. So appreciate you taking the time out. And it's been a genuine pleasure talking this through with you. Thank you. It's been great fun. Join the Workplace Wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at World of Good Book. Thank you to my guests today and thank you for listening.